Hello, this is the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast from Literary Hub, where we believe that every issue in your Twitter feed or on the evening news has already been tackled somewhere in literature. I'm Vivi Ganeshanandan, also known as Sugi, author of the novel Love Marriage. And I'm Whitney Terrell, author of the novel The Good Lieutenant. So, Whit, you're a mask-wearing white guy. <laughs> it's a complicated thing to say to someone these days. <laughs> so I guess you're not part of the white backlash. Yeah. No, I'm not in the uh, I'm not in the backlash club, um, which I hope will not be as powerful a club as it has been in the past. Uh, what would you would you still do the podcast with me if I wanted to join the, the backlash? Probably not, or it would be a very very different show. I don't think we'd have a show, really. No, we probably would not have a show. Um, do you think the white backlash is real? Do you have like the white inside track on that? I look. I I'm hoping it's not real enough to to turn the election, <laughs> but of course it's a real thing, right? And I. I do have I do talk to white people who are starting to say things to me like, well, I really wish those protesters hadn't broken those windows or I really don't like what's going on in Portland or I don't want to defund the police. The people are saying that 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 is a happening and not just among Republicans. I do think it's a danger. Um, and fortunately, however, we have some brilliant guests who talk to us about the past and present of American protest. And yes, white backlash, how real it is, who's pushing it and what it means and what kind of attention we should be paying to it. Later in the show, we'll talk to my old friend Russell Banks about this and, and how this happened in the 60s. But first, we're happy to be joined by Caitlin Greenidge. Her writing has appeared in Vogue, Glamour, The Wall Street Journal, L.com, BuzzFeed, Transition Magazine, Virginia Quarterly Review, The Believer, American Short Fiction, and other places. She's the recipient of fellowships from the Whiting Foundation, the National Endowment for the Arts, the Radcliffe Institute for Advanced Study, and others. Her debut novel, We Love You, Charlie Freeman, was one of the New York Times critics' top 10 books for 2016. She was a contributing editor for Lenny Letter and is currently a contributing writer for the New York Times. Caitlin, welcome to the show. Uh, thank you so much for having me. So in this episode, uh, we're aiming to unpack the idea of white backlash against the protests following George Floyd's murder. Polls have indicated widespread support for Black Lives Matter and those protests, including among white Americans, which is been a good thing in my view, uh, but it seems like a lot of the so-called backlash we're seeing now is something that Trump, the Trump administration is definitely trying to gin up uh, uh, white backlash by sending federal troops to Portland or not agents or whatever they are, um, talking about protecting monuments at Mount Rushmore and all of his rhetoric around that issue. I wondered if you could talk to us about whether you think that strategy is going to work and is this silent majority that Trump is talking about when he harkens back to that Nixon phrase still a real thing. You know, I think that the I question of whether or not it will work is sort of like a complicated one because I think it is already working for a good segment of the white population of our country. Like the latest polls is that 50% um, of white people still back President Trump, I think was the poll that came out this week. Um, and, you know, we are in the middle of a pandemic. We are seeing uh, unemployment levels that uh, super seed uh, what we had the depression. Um, we literally are are stuck in our houses, and yet fifty percent of people are still willing to <laughs> vote for this person again. Um, and I think that really speaks to the fact that those things are working um, and are part of a very old uh, current and strategy in American culture and American life, um, and has been a continual call in American culture and American life. You know, uh, since. Nat Turner's Rebellion, essentially. Um, and 
uh, it's super old and it, it, it is something that we have to be able to recognize the contours of and study the contours of so that we know when it's entered into the conversation. Um, and then also study the contours of um, how people resisted um, and counter argued against that extremely old argument um, in the past. Um, and then, you know, the question of a silent majority, I, I think that those, that the demographic that that phrase is invoking um, exists, but I don't think they've ever been silent. I think they've probably been pretty loud in the chorus of um, what people think America can or should be. Um, but, but a key part, at least um, in their, that demographics identity of the last 50 years ago since the 70s is this idea that they are somehow um, on the defensive, that they're somehow um, oppressed, uh, which is super interesting. Like, um, I think if there's any thing that is different about white supremacy in this moment than it has been in the past in American culture is that um, it's very much invested in the idea of uh, whiteness as victimhood um, and less sort of whiteness under attack, which are two slightly different things. Um, you know, the older version of white supremacy is whiteness under attack, but um, whiteness uh, uh, always triumphant. And uh, this version is very much um, whiteness as a marginalized identity um, somehow uh, in this country. That's so interesting. Um, I write mostly about Sri Lanka where you also have a majority that thinks of itself as victims. And that analogy really had not occurred to me that we are moving more in that direction. And you recently tweeted about framings of white backlash. Um, and, and you tweeted about it in a way that forced me to kind of question how I had been thinking about it. And I wondered if we could also kind of begin our conversation with you reading those tweets for us and elaborating a little bit about the paradigms that we've um, been using and maybe how we can how we can challenge them. Sure. Um, so I said uh, the term white backlash frames those actions as inevitable and natural uh, as if order is being restored after black liberation goes quote unquote too far. And while I agree that white backlash inevitably follows black freedoms, I do not think there's anything natural or blameless about it. What if the conversation instead was framed as there's something in the construction of whiteness that demands violent supremacy when even the glimmer of another way of being comes through? And why is that? Um, so I thought a lot about how I was taught sort of about white backlash in um, history class uh, growing up. Um, even if that was, I, I don't even think we were allowed to uh, uh, attach the word white to it. I think it was just sort of like backlash in general. Um, and it's often framed, I think, as sort of like, well, what do you expect people to do? Like, this is sort of like a bridge too far. Um, and even for myself, I'm, I, I think I've internalized that. Um, and I think oftentimes when we talk about um, the history of freedom struggles in the US for black people, the narrative is often sort of like, and then they did X and that was like a little bit too much for white people. Um, and and the, the framing of it is, is sort of like, and isn't that awful, but also sort of like understandable. Um, and so I think we could get a little bit farther if we rethought that impulse. Um, you know, I, I, I notice a lot um, in these, in the summer and spring of sort of seeing so many incidents of uh, police brutality and of um, white people sort of really cruelly exercising their, their social supremacy over black people. 
um, you know, oftentimes into those conversations sort of comes like, well, what was the black person doing? Um, like, were, like, did they go a little bit too far and like that was understood? Like, um, you know, it, what's clearly the white person was acting in a reasonable way, um, even though the violence may be a little bit too far to, or gone to unreasonable, but like, what was the black person doing to cause it? Um, and I think that's like really embedded. Um, not only white people ask that question, some black people ask that question. Um, many black people still frame it in that way. That's sort of like the whole place where respectability politics comes from. That if we just did it in, acted and did in the very precise uh, confines of um, what will not threaten the white imagination, which is threatened by anything blackness does, um, we wouldn't be treated like this, right? Um, and we're going on like year 250 of this argument uh, that doesn't seem to be true. You know, we, uh, I, a statistic that really struck me um, that I read a few years back was like the Obama administration is the only administration in like the last 40 years, I think, that didn't have any felony convictions come out of anybody working in that administration. Um, and, uh, you know, that is, unfortunately, that is a remarkable fact of like American political life. So even with a presidency and, you know, Obama, I'm not suggesting is like, was like a wonderful um, blameless president and did everything correct. But within the letter of the law, he sure did, apparently. Um, and so uh, even in that uh, instance of the Obamas, like so carefully curating their, their public persona and public um, uh, approach, um, for a white audience, for a white middle-class swing voter audience, um, and really catering to that audience in their policy and uh, and um, general stance, even in that case of like the best good Negro we could ever produce, um, resulted in Trump. So I I just really want to push back on this idea that um, white backlash is somehow something that can be satiated or or stopped in any sort of way, um, and that it's more a function of um, the social construct of whiteness uh, and and what's within that. I totally agree with all those things, especially that tweet that it is, you know, the idea that that somehow uh, white backlash is natural is a, is a ridiculous and insane idea, but that is nevertheless embedded in our culture. However, I, I do want to talk about the election coming up because I sort of feel like, yes, of course, the, the everything you're saying about the uh, Obama's and the Trump presidency being a backlash against them, I think is all true and has been well documented in terms of the way his voters vote specifically on racial uh, and white supremacy issues. But I'm not ready to give up this next election. Like, I think there's a chance that that Trump doesn't win, you know, and, and what would that mean if he didn't? I've been listening to like podcast 538 and uh, some other podcasts. 538 is a, you know, who are saying like, they don't think that this white backlash strategy that Trump is doing is going to work and they think it's bad and they think he should he's trying to change the conversation away from this. But what, what do you think as somebody who writes about these issues? Is Are they right in saying like, oh, Trump should be pivoting away from this? Or do you think, no, he should go for this. He has a chance to win if he follows this backlash strategy. I mean, even the idea that it's a strategy, I think is one that I want to push back on. Like, it's not a like a like a neutral strategy. It's he is a white supremacist. He believes this. Like, it's not right. like um, something that he is necessarily doing to win votes. And 
um, you know, Biden trafficked in white backlash stuff as well. So <laughs> I, I think it is, a, an, like I said, it's an undercurrent of American culture um, and how we talk about race and how we talk about whiteness in American culture um, throughout, so kind of like across the spectrum. It's, it, is just, it just is, it's, it's in the air, um, it, which means that we have to sort of like um, itemize it and sort of talk about it. And, and I don't know what's going to happen on election day. I think, you know, we, you know, we just, we're living in a weekend where we just found out that um, the postal service is, you know, being completely torn apart and states are going to be charged to uh, mail ballots, you know, to mail them in. We're essentially all living under a poll tax now. Um, so uh, I, I, I really think we are in a precarious situation where um, even the, uh, polls that we think are sort of telling us what we, even if those polls are 100% accurate, they still can't account for um, what do you do when a third of people haven't made rent or their mortgage payment and are homeless by November and so literally cannot vote without an address? What do we do then? Um, you know, I, I just think there's so many uh, uncertainties that to um, treat this as sort of like uh, uh, a, uh, a thing that can be uh, plotted out or charted out is maybe impossible at the current moment, which is really depressing and frustrating. But I think the way that we continue to move forward and don't just sort of give up in despair on the election at this point is to have conversations like this continually. Um, you know, a point of real surprise of the last um, four to six years is the complete turnaround around Black Lives Matter. Like in 2014, 2015, I believe like most of the polls said that most people did not support the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, and most people were extremely skeptical of it. And we've seen a complete turnaround, like a turnaround that didn't even happen during the civil rights movement around uh, civil rights in uh, white polling, you know, and in an extremely short period of time. And, you know, I, I have to be, not be cynical and be hopeful in this point that think that a huge part of that turnaround is because of the intensity of conversations in spaces like this that people have had around these questions raised by those movements in the last four to six years um, in a really dedicated way. Um, and I see those the conversations like this rippling out into the wider consciousness and wider way that people talk about things. Um, and so I think that in between now and November, having these conversations again and again to get at them from all these different points is a way to counteract um, kind of these things that are, are sort of all around us. Well, speaking of how to talk about that oscillation between optimism and pessimism in the wane of the oncoming, you know, pandemic and then all the other bad news associated with it, you wrote uh, this uh, amazing and wonderful Times op-ed, which touches on how at the outset the pandemic was thought to maybe be a great equalizer, but that myth was very quickly uh, debunked. I wondered if you could talk about that uh, essay and maybe read to us from it. Yeah, I'll just, I'll talk about first sort of the, the impetus of writing it, which is um, that phrase that uh, my mother says a lot to me and that I think a lot of parents say to their children, which is this too shall pass um, when you're going through difficult times. Um, and, you know, I see that phrase on uh, church billboards around my town. I see people writing it in their windows sometimes during COVID. Um, and it, feels at the start of the pen of, of our quarantine rather I should say um, and even right now some days it feels sort of like a really futile phrase that it's sort of describing uh, 
a reality that we don't necessarily live in anymore. Because um, this too shall pass is assuming on linear time. And one of the really crazy things about this pandemic, like I think other writers have talked about it, you know, um, Aditya Roy had that beautiful essay um, the, about the pandemic being a portal. Um, but one of the things that's really challenging about this time is like, at least for me, the pandemic is revealing sort of like how false that idea of linear time and linear pro progress is. Um, you know, we're living in a summer that is literally echoing the bloody red summer of 1919, 1920, where again, we, we, we saw a, a global pandemic and racial uprising and racial unrest. Um, in many ways, it feels like we're sort of like reliving through that. Um, it feels like we're oftentimes doubling back or losing ground on a lot of things while, also, while we're also moving forward. And so I wanted to sort of write about that and about that, that question of language and, and how we intersect with it. <clears throat> when my mother used to try to convince me of the inevitability of progress, I would sometimes turn to other Black women's voices, the ones people called bitter, angry, or mad. I listened to Nina Simone singing Backlash Blues. When I tried to find a job to earn a little cash, all you got to offer is your mean old white backlash. She sang of, of a world that operated outside of the arithmetic of It Gets Better. The end of that song is not a belief in progress, but a call for a shift of power. But the world is big, she sings in the next breath, big and bright and round, and it's full of other folks like me who are black, yellow, beige, and brown. But that doesn't seem to be entirely the right direction in which to point my niece. Righteous rage doesn't fully provide comfort in this time. What we are facing requires more fortitude than quick burning anger. So I look to the visionaries, the one who tried to see forward. I consider giving my niece a link to Octavia Butler's A Few Rules for, for Predicting the Future. It is an essay she wrote in Essence Magazine 20 years ago at the dawn of this millennium, when she had already predicted in her own novels the rise of an American president who uses the slogan, make America great again, and promotes an idealized white nationalist past to a multi-ethnic nation facing unprecedented challenges. In the essay, Ms. Butler says, of course, writing novels about the future does not give me any special ability to foretell the future, but it does encourage me to use our past and present behaviors as guides to the kinds of worlds we seem to be creating. The past, for example, is filled with repeating cycles of strength and weakness, wisdom and stupidity, empire and ashes. That maybe is getting closer of what I want to say, though it does not contain anything as reassuring, as placid as this too shall pass. So I look a bit further and I find these words from Alondra Nelson, a historian, in a recent interview. She said, the great mythos of American life is the idea that we're always improving, always moving forward. And the great story of science and technology is that it is also always leaping forward to good ends. She notes that we have, quote, an overinvestment in a progressive narrative, particularly with regards to racial politics, issues of gender, equality, and equity, without sufficient attention to the fact that there's the falling backward as much as there are leaps forward. And that this political moment should be one of humility, of paying attention to looping back and of acknowledging that sometimes looping back means failure, means going back to the woodshed, means throwing out what we thought we knew and thinking again. It is a hard lesson for a middle schooler. It is a lesson that a majority of, of adults I know would reject. 
but I wonder how much further we could get, how much wider we could imagine solutions to this crisis if we set aside the false belief that time always moves us toward a better tomorrow. Thank you so much, Caitlin. I really loved that essay and I appreciated, I think a lot about, um, I don't know, optimism and its place in our conversations, um, what it means to have hope, but also the limits of that. And, but then also the value of, of looking ahead and that line at the end with the, the Nina Simone song about it being not a belief in progress, but a call for a shift of power really got to me. And I think that um, it's interesting the way that you were talking before about sort of the notion that white backlash is inevitable. And in this way, it's, it's almost like the opposite, like also challenging the notion that progress is inevitable. Like we have to choose all of these things and we have to elect them and be responsible for them and hang on to them and revise ourselves when they don't work. And um, you were talking a little bit before about how white backlash um, has changed in the Trump era and you were making that distinction between um, whiteness under attack and whiteness is victimhood. And that seems like one of those backwards moments that you're kind of pointing to, right? Like that's, um, that's worse. <laughs> Why do you think it's worse? Because it's more false. I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm sort of wrestling with this idea as, as you're saying it. I mean, I'm thinking about it. Um, I mean, the frame that I'm coming from is sort of Singhala Buddhist majoritarianism in Sri Lanka. And there the narrative is, you know, Singhala Buddhists have no other place on earth and we are beleaguered and besieged by a large Tamil population that is both Indian and Sri Lankan and it's global. And, um, and that narrative has become more and more entrenched. And I'm also talking about this in the wake of Sri Lankan elections that I found profoundly dispiriting. And so, I, I mean, I'm also, I'm thinking of it as worse for those reasons, which maybe, maybe that's not right. What do you think? No, I, I think, I think it makes the um, a, attempt to fight it more difficult um, because the claim, the claim of victimhood often um, reduces and, and like negates any sort of criticism, right. And conversation, like, like we oftentimes, I think it's a little bit tricky because, um, you know, when you talk about like, do victims of certain kinds of uh, violence, uh, you know, racial violence, sexual violence often get justice? The answer is like in the wider scheme of things, no. But in the way that we often talk about victimhood, um, we sort of make sh make certain types of victimization unassailable. Um, you know, I think the best writer who writes about it probably is Sarah Shulman. She has that really wonderful book, Conflict is Not Abuse, where she talks about this dynamic, where she talks about um, people in a normal uh, system of conflict, just like the conflict that arises from two people talking and having different um, desires. Uh, the tendency of one of those people to claim victimhood um, when they are met with someone else who has a different desire than they do. Um, and, uh, and the reasons why that, that happens and um, who gets supported in claiming that victimhood when that happens. Um, and I think, you know, that book is brilliant. I, you know, like many people, um, I think it's, it is like the perfect book for this moment and for this elect, the last election and this election. Um, and, uh, I think that claim, because we don't necessarily in the wider cultural conversation have a way to describe that, um, equation, like that dynamic, um, when, when a majority population takes on that um, uh, mantle of victimhood, the larger cultural conversation often becomes around legitimizing that, that claim. 
um, or attempting to understand that claim and not um, refuting it. When you're talking about the idea of the white majority claiming victimhood, they also are adopting and and Trump supporters adopt the language of progressivism to start to talk about themselves, right? So like there's that amazing scene just this week at Mar-a-Lago where Trump had a bunch of his like country club supporters there to watch him talk to the press. And he called them counter protesters, you know, and said that they were, you know, protesting for their freedoms. And but no, they're standing on a private country club that costs three hundred fifty thousand dollars a year to be a member of, for Christ's sake. You know? Yeah, I mean, I think we see that happening in many um, countries and many political cultures at the moment. Um, You know, I think there's an argument to be made that like that's a key point of fascism, of this sort of like global fascist movement that is happening in many countries right now. Um, in America, though, it is fascinating and would be fascinating to for a writer or a scholar to trace um, all the times that uh, white supremacist movements borrow language, imagery, and um, at this point, um, certain figures from uh, Black liberation movements and, and Black freedom movements. Um, you know, there is a strain of conservatism that is uh, deeply interested in reclaiming Martin Luther King as somehow part of their um, tradition while not reading anything that he has actually written. Um, and uh, similarly, uh, you know, attempts to sort of claim, uh, you know, these uh, Black freedom fighters like Frederick Douglass or um I think Sojourner Truth is probably a little even bit too far for them, but is Frederick Douglass the one that Trump thinks is still alive? Is he? Is he? Didn't he say something about that? he does? <laughs> I've also seen um, some conservative writers because Frederick Douglass, you know, identified with the Republican Party of 1865, um, uh, attempt to claim him as some sort of libertarian-minded, um, like freedom fighter. Uh, which again, if you read anything that Douglas has written, that's really is not the tradition that he's writing in or, or attempting to argue within. I heard this stock guy, Jim Cramer, quotes Malcolm X all the time to talk about Steve Mnuchin. He's like, by any means necessary, meaning what the Fed or the other government will do to help get the economy back on track. And I'm like, can you, it's, I feel like I'm just going to blow up, you know, from hearing some guy on a stock show quote Malcolm X. It's just insane. It is insane, but it's, it's, I mean, that has been going on with Malcolm X for a long time in uh, Malcolm Marable's fantastic biography of him that came out about like eight or nine years ago in his introduction, which is brilliant essay on its own. He really traces how Malcolm X in the eighties and nineties became like, a, kind of like a lovable uncle figure on the right. And at one point, Dan Quayle claimed um, Autobiography of Malcolm X was his favorite book. Oh, that one I didn't know. <laughs> yeah, this attempt to really diffuse these Black radical figures um, who were very clear in their speech. You know, it's it, there's it's an intense cynicism on the part of um, uh, white conservatives to claim these people because they know that most people are not going to read their words. Um, you know, most people are going to read the quote um, that sounds really sexy, like by any means necessary, or um, I have a dream, you know, like those really kind of sexy sound bites. But um, they know that most people aren't going to do the further reading of, of grappling with the contradictions of thought within these figures. Um, and so it makes it very easy to kind of move ahead. Um, you know, you, got, you asked a little bit earlier about like what feels different about this moment. What feels different is like, I know people 
are like have mixed feelings about like all of the anti-racist reading lists that were going around but I actually really love and appreciate that that was a, a a widespread impulse in this moment was to like no let's go back and do the reading let's go back and actually read these things whether or not people actually crack the books that they bought for Instagram whatever but I appreciate that like the the impulse people understood that the impulse was like we need to go back to like some source texts and like have a deeper reading and understanding. I haven't seen um, anything like that in American cultural life before where people responded to a political moment like this to say, actually, I really want to do like a deep dive reading to figure out what's going on. That's a nice way to think about it, because I feel like so much is denuded of context in on Twitter, Instagram, GIFs, what have you. Um, and to kind of think that the homework is something that you could do even now, no matter what part of your life you're in. I'm also interested in, you were saying, like, it would be interesting for a writer or scholar to go back and trace the contours of this kind of theft of progressive language that seems to be going on. Um, Like, how do you think writers can address this? Like, I mean, other than sort of a specific piece of what you're talking about, like, are there ways that we should be engaging this question, you know, I don't know, on my Twitter feed in essays that I'm writing as I think about fiction? Um, how How do you think about grappling with this language in your own work? Like the language of progressivism or this question of language being co-opted by people by other means? A little bit of both. I don't know. So many of the terms that I once held dear seem to be being robbed of meaning. And I used them. I loved them. I cared about those things. And now I don't always know what language to go for. Um, do we need to develop new language, like find ways to articulate the um, inauthenticity of some of these versions of it? What do you think? I think it's a challenge for a writer and it is um, one of the good challenges of our work. A good example is the um, evolution of the word privilege and of that discourse around the word privilege. Um, And now that word is sort of meaningless. Um, And if you include that word in something like an op-ed, you raise the risk of turning off like 75% of your readers um, who fall across the political spectrum, you know, and will dislike that word for a variety a thousand different reasons. Um, so when I'm writing something like a nonfiction piece and I want to talk about the concept of something like privilege, that forces me to um, either ground it in a real world example or um, like like a personal example, I should say, um, or it forces me to um, come up with another way to describe what it is that I'm trying to describe at that moment. So. I go back and I read a lot of, uh, I was reading a lot of um, newspapers, black newspapers from Reconstruction for my novel, when I was doing novel research for my second book. And it's interesting the phrases that sort of were within those newspapers that um, I could tell from the tone of how people were using them. They were political catchphrases, but we don't use them anymore, really. Um, And uh, I think there's something to be said for as writers um, constantly being forced to rethink and reevaluate and evolve the language is probably one of the like hidden blessings out of this moment, maybe if you can think of it in that way, Um, because it forces us to be nimbler writers with our words. I'm also thinking about some of what you were saying in relation to agency and narrative, because you're talking about, um, right, if the American narrative of progress isn't inevitable and we have to choose it. Um, And also we're sort of collectively responsible for it. I mean, it seems to me that American traditions of narrative are so heavily individualized and our imaginations are so heavily individualized 
Um, right? Like you're asking, rightly, I mean, what do we do when a third of people are, don't have an address and aren't going to be able to vote? Um, right? We're talking about their lack of agency and power in this situation. How do we talk about that? Um, but you're also talking about it in a way that is really energizing because you're talking about our opportunity to expand our imagination of what progress could be and look like, which is like a much more hopeful take than I sometimes have when I when I think about when I think about um, um, the American inability to talk about the collective. You know, optimism is a is like a cultivated practice. I think I think a lot of people probably feel that way at this moment. And um, for me, I try to focus on the fact that um, so much of what we called progress of the last, like uh, I'll say, thirty years, um, wasn't working for a large sweep of people who were swept up into what supposedly that progress was. Um, and so, you know, that world is breaking down and crumbling. And um, when those things are swept away, there's going to be a vacuum, whether we like it or not. So we can either imagine and, and work towards filling that vacuum, or we can mourn that world that is going away, but, but mourning it isn't going to bring it back. Um, you know, mourning it isn't going to build anything. Um, and I think we have an extraordinary opportunity right now to actively build the worlds and things that we want. Um, I, I, during this pandemic, I was reading the Tony K. Bambara's novel, The Salt Eaters, um, which is about uh, movement, people working in movement work, um, 1970s, like Black freedom fighters, um, basically burnt out from the revolution that didn't happen um uh trying to heal themselves uh it's really revolutionary work and it opens with the line um do you actually want to get well um which is like a really profound line i think for us in, in the u.s like do we actually want the um responsibility that comes with making this country better and i would sit with that i think we should all sit with that for a minute because i think underlining a lot of the arguments and a lot of the, the, the anxiety and the fear is that for some of us, we know that answer is not yet. Um, and that's really hard to like sit with um, because, you know, to get well may mean that some of us, um, for us to collectively get well may mean that some of us have to give up some of the privileges that we have right now, may mean that some of us um, have to live in a, in a different way than we were expecting. Uh, may mean that some of us may have to reorder what we think um, success looks like for a writer. This is ex you're getting on exactly what white backlash is about, right? I mean, because I feel like the people that I know who are having the most difficult time adjusting to the world now are the people who lived in all white environments mm -hmm. and who never, ever got out of them. And who now, especially in the middle of coronavirus, when a virus is saying to them, you have to do some things that you don't want to do. They've never had that experience in their lives and they don't know what the fuck to do. And they're, so they're like, ah, it doesn't exist. Fuck it. You know, and it's, it's almost like a white privilege real reaction to the virus, you know, because those people have not ever had their lives impinged on in any way. Right. And I think we have to reimagine like what a good life would look like to um, build this better world. Like there's uh, someone pointed me to this really wonderful June Jordan essay um, that the title is escaping me at the moment, but um, uh, I think it's called like, um, rethinking the American dream. Um, and she talks about in the essay, she writes about how 
um, as a writer, she reached what she thought was the pinnacle of success for her career. She had been told was the pinnacle of success for a writer, which was to live completely alone um, in a beautiful countryside and be able to um, dedicate yourself to your art only um, for 12 hours at a time. And the only other person alive around her was um, one other artist, a sculptor, a sculptor, an older white guy sculptor who also lived that way. And, and he was like the model of um, uh, greatest artistic success. And she writes about being there and thinking in her head, like I've made it, like I've made it. This is where I'm supposed to be. This is like pinnacle of success. But she doesn't have any community around her. She's completely divorced from her um, family. Um, and the essay takes a turn when she reveals that um, later on when someone breaks into her house and rapes her, there's nobody that she can have to call. Um, so she's talking about that tension, that incredible tension of reaching what is supposedly worldly artistic success, um, but in a very real way, not having any of the things that actually count for a good life or community support or any of those things. And so when we talk about like, what is, what are, do we actually want to get well? Like, what would this new world look like? Letting go of some of those ideas of what we think of as success of that big house on the hill and, and, um, you know, especially for us artists of somehow being removed from the world or removed from um, community interaction, uh, perhaps that is not um, what's going to be uh, a, a good thing to make us well in this new world. Caitlin, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a pleasure having you on the show and so looking forward to your second novel also. Oh, thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm, I really had a great time and great time speaking with you guys. Thank you very much. Up next, we'd like to welcome Russell Banks. Russell Banks is the author of 18 novels and story collections, including The Sweet Hereafter and Affliction, which were adapted into very successful films. Twice a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize, he has also published nonfiction collections, including his most recent book, Voyager. And his work has appeared in the Boston Globe magazine, Vanity Fair, the New York Times Book Review, Esquire, and many, many other places. Plus, he was my thesis advisor in college. Russell, it's great to have you on the show, and I'm happy to see you again. I'm happy to see you again, too, Whit. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm glad you, you grew up. <laughs> it's funny, Whit, I don't know that we've ever discussed this, but uh, Russell, you were an influence on one of my theses as well, because I wrote about uh, The Darling in my, in my journalism school thesis when I wrote, was writing about literature of the weather underground. Um, oh, wow. So it's a, it's a thrill for me to have you with us also. And, and uh, so I really appreciate your being here. Oh, great. It's good. It's good to talk about The, the Darling, too. I haven't talked about it in a long while, and, and uh, uh, I have to refresh my memory a little bit. You can refresh my memory for me, I think, probably better. You remember the characters' names probably better than I do. <laughs> well, yeah, so it's, it's you know, I, I always like to go back to the 60s. You were, you were in college at the University of North Carolina in the 60s, and you had connections with protest movements yourself at the time, which... Um, you know, you were a member of, of SDS and you participated in civil rights marches. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about that time in your life. Uh, well, I showed up at Chapel Hill in 1964, uh, September 64, uh, coming down. I was 24 years old. I was married and had a child um, and already thought of myself as a writer. And um, I had been more or less on the road for the intervening years between 18 and 24. Um and I had lived all over uh, the deep south, I mean, South Florida, and uh, traveled in, all over, too, in Mexico and in the West Coast. And uh, 
at this time, up leading up to that, I had been working as a plumber in New Hampshire. And I had a very um, unformed um, sense of, the, of, of racial realities, despite that wandering, um, until I walked uh, into uh, Chapel Hill. Uh, and the, the civil rights movement was going on. And, and within about 48 hours, I was in jail and, um, um, you know, bailed out the next day. But I mean, it, it, you could not be there and be a person of conscience. Wait, can we go back to the within 48 hours I was in jail part and <laughs> tell us exactly how that happened? Well, just uh, demonstrating um, in Chapel Hill at that time. Chapel Hill was a segregated town. Uh, the university had only recently uh, integrated racially, um, and uh, but the town itself, the bars, restaurants, theaters, bookshops, everything was segregated racially. And so the students were leading, with some faculty, were leading the civil rights movement there with the aid of of, uh, of CORE and and, um, and SCLC and other um, uh, black organizations. And so um, it was a. It, uh, almost impo- well, it wasn't impossible to not uh, to, to uh, stay out of it, but uh, it was impossible for me to stay out of it, and and most of the people I admired and respected. So anyhow, that was sort of the beginning of it uh, of my acquaintance with uh, racial realities. Even though I had traveled through those racial realities, uh, had seen and and. Uh, a South that was essentially uh, ruled by apartheid. Um, before that, it hadn't come home. It wasn't personal uh, for me. Um, I was a tourist uh, in it. I had been raised in an almost completely white uh, society in the Northeast, um, and I had uh, socially uh, become almost completely white life. Um, and so this was the first time where um, I had to... Um, uh, address those issues in a in a personal and felt um, uh, way and commit uh, to it one way or the other. Um, down there at the time, to get back to your question, um, the civil rights movement and most of the of the white uh, students like myself who were involved in it uh, sort of naturally uh, or and maybe inevitably uh, crossed over into the anti-war movement. Um, and and um, and that's where um, uh, that single issue uh, of race became a double issue then of race and 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 foreign policy polit- politics um, uh, on a different um, in a different dimension in a different way, and that led to a wider sense of a critique uh, I think amongst myself myself and and, and amongst my my cohort as well. Uh, so that we weren't just uh, uh, um, demonstrating for fighting and, 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 and in some cases risking our, our bodies uh, uh, if on a single issue. We were, we were engaging in what began to feel gradually like um, social uh, upheaval on a much broader and wider scale. That's when something like uh, SDS became um, instrumental. I'm just going to step in and say that SDS, for people who might not know, stands for Students for a Democratic Society. That was the acronym then. Right. Um, so there was this revolutionary wing, which came gradually to uh, represent in the public mind um, the um, um, less revolutionary, um, much more moderate uh, wing uh, of activist uh, youth. 
So anyhow, I just sort of, uh, speaking personally, uh, I followed that trail um, up to about 68 um, and, um, and, and 70 and, and then kind of withdrew myself from a politically active, but no less politically engaged in many ways, um, uh, life, partly because I was married and now had two children and partly because uh, I was a writer and I had to, um, to dedicate myself to that activity and also because I had to earn a living. And, uh, and so my life changed. I went back to New Hampshire where I was from and I got a little teaching job and, uh, and lived a much more kind of bourgeois uh, uh, life uh, and in many ways a, a, a more um, deactivated uh, life uh, in political terms. Well, I want to connect that back to that period of time in North Carolina for you and this particular period of time, which we're going to later in this interview compare to today. But, you know, so you, your first collection of poetry, you had a, your first book was a collection of poetry, came out in 1969. I think your first novel came out in 75. So you retired in New Hampshire, but you've had this experience politically, and you would go on in your career to write about John Brown, to write about Haitian immigration, to write about many black and white working class characters. And you were rare in your generation, I think, for a white writer to have as many interracial characters as you do. Um, how did this experience of protest at North Carolina affect the writer that you were become? Were you aware of it affecting you as a writer at the time? Or did it just happen sort of on its own? Not deep. No, not deeply. You know, um, what you live ends up affecting your writing, of course. And um, and then what you write starts affecting what you live. And, and before you know it, there's a there's a circular uh, kind of relationship between the uh, the two. And uh, one is feeding constantly feeding the other. And I think that was I was still evolving as a writer. And uh, um, and so I wasn't all that conscious of uh, of. Um, of, of what was affecting my writing from out of my own personal experience, but it clearly was. Um, I was being educated um, in a way that I had never been educated before, and 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 naturally, within a few years, that was uh, profoundly affect uh, changed me, and and profoundly affected my work, and in a conscious and deliberate way from there. And then the work itself started to um, to change me, um, and, and further, and take it further, and go further yet, and 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 realize the both the the, the political and the aesthetic um, complications, um, and um, that it um, that that it uh, created for me, and try to devise uh, fictional means for dealing with those complications because they weren't, as you noted, um, all that available amongst the. Uh, uh, other writers of of, uh, of my ilk, I mean, let's say white male writers uh, from the middle class, um, and and so uh, I um, I had to make it a kind of conscious operation with. I mean, where I I, um, I think more than many writers of my generation, at least, I was in, set on saying, how can I deal with these crucial issues, um, these these startling and and um, and and, and inescapable realities that I now see around me. Uh, how can I bring this into uh, fiction that's still a work of art and not a, not a, uh, a, um, a piece of propaganda or, um, or something driven solely by ideology? So it was a, a very complicated and lengthy and um, partially, perhaps even some 
mostly maybe, uh, unconscious process. And uh, only looking back, I could say, oh, yeah, I see I made that jump there and that jump there. I thought I was writing about something but I'm something else, but in fact, that's what I was writing about. I mean, and, and then there are other kinds of strands that came into it uh, for me, uh, accidental, some of it. Um, in 1975, I got a Guggenheim uh, Fellowship and... Um, and I had traveled in Jamaica and I had become really fascinated by um, West Indian history, uh, history of, of, of slavery, uh, Afro-Caribbean history. And I, and I took that occasion uh, to move my family. I now had three children and, and move my family to Jamaica, where I lived then for almost two years. Um, and that, too, had a big impact uh, in the middle 70s um, on, on, uh, on my life and on my thinking and, and, and therefore on my work and, and, and books like The Book of Jamaica and, and certain short stories and, and, uh, and then later Continental Drift really kind of rose out of, out of my um, um, experience in my life there. So, uh, I mean, this is like any human life. I mean, you're out in the world. These these uh, these forces uh, end up uh, at play in your imagination. And before you know it, they're on the page. We've been talking to Caitlin Greenidge about the Trump administration's attempt to manufacture a backlash against protests today. And in 68, Richard Nixon was promising to restore law and order after protests broke out over MLK's assassination. Um, in 1969, he coined the term silent majority that Trump has now tried to adopt and, and use for his own purposes. So I'm curious to hear you talk a little bit about what it felt like at the time to watch Nixon run that kind of campaign and win the presidency in 68 and 72 as he did. Well, yes, I, I, the similarities sometimes are really striking. Um, at least how I experienced it and then and how I'm experiencing it now. I remember vividly, really, especially in the early 70s, uh, up through the middle 70s, that um, my greatest concern in many ways in response to the political realities was how to avoid um, descending into uh, rage and... Um, and um, and a sense of hopelessness, um, and, and uh, both of which are kind of useless when you are are trying to. I'm hoping uh, you're going to tell us how to do that because yeah. that is a problem that I have been having. Yeah, yeah. And, 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 well, I was having it in '68, '69, '70, '71, and so forth. You know, and, and um, you can get religion, I guess, or you can go live on a commune or something like that, I guess, in order to deal with it and 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 screw down um, to uh, everything to a small package where you can uh, control it and, and feel somewhat comforted by that. I, but that isn't realistic either. That's just a kind of another form of escape from the realities that surround us. And, um, and so th there's, a, there's a stark similarity, which I've noticed a lot in the last, um, well, since 2016, really, um, the uh, between then and now in that regard, like personally, I mean, this is what I'm struggling with. I'm struggling with how do I keep alive that flame of hope, um, which is what we had in 64, 65, 66, um, uh, leading up to 68. Uh, there was still a flame of hope uh, that you could fan and keep going and, and it, 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 it tempered your rage and tempered your your frustration and your despair. 
um, in a way that uh, I find extremely difficult to do now. Well, one of the things we're kind of talking about is like that that moment of hope that happened perhaps with Obama's presidency is in some ways related to this other like repressive moment that comes afterward. I guess it did it feel the same way in in 68 uh, with the successful marches and then the assassination of this person who had been so important of a leader and then the breaking down into rioting and Nixon's rise and all that sort of stuff. Is that a similar kind of thing? Yeah, um, but for me, it seems even more difficult to time now uh, in many respects. One is is the, the concentration of wealth and power in, into the hands of a very small number of, of families and people and institutions um, and companies, which was not the case then. Um, the economic differences between then and now um, are enormous, and the technological differences are enormous too. They're both simultaneously empowering and simultaneously disempowering. Um, so I don't know. It's harder for me today to have the kind of hope I could generate still back in the day. I find myself bleaker today than I was then, less hopeful, yeah, more despairing. Suki looks very concerned. Do you remember that? <laughs> Do you remember that Tom Frank said this on our last episode that he that he felt the same way? Like he, he wasn't he was having a hard time sustaining that sort of hopeful hopefulness. Yeah, Black Lives Matter has been really interesting to me as it has arisen. Because it, that has brought back actually good associations with what was happening in the, in the mid-60s. And it has brought whites into the black struggle um, in a way that it, I hadn't seen it since then, since the 60s. Um, and and I, I tend to feel those are the kinds of movements in American political life that have had success, have created positive change in society. It's when they, the movements expand and start to embrace many issues simultaneously that uh, two things happen. is one, they scare the hell out of uh, the rest of the American population because it, it sounds like revolution. Um, and, and the other thing is they start to fragment. The movement starts to fragment. And then you get SDS, you got Weathermen, you have this left and you have that left. And before you know it, they're all fighting each other. Uh, and um, and accusing each other of impurities and uh, ideological and, and moral. And, and so uh, up to this moment, um, and out of the last couple of months and year, maybe the last year or so, the Black Lives Matters movement seems to me to be the most positive thing that has happened in American political life really since the middle-late 60s. Um, so speaking of Weathermen, in your 2004 novel, The Darling, uh, the main character, Hannah Musgrave, is a, is a quasi-member of the Weather Underground. She comes from privilege, and her father is a celebrity doctor and civil rights activist, and she's certainly on the right side of history. But her connection to civil rights and black activism is very complicated in a, del- in a deliberate way in the novel. And I wonder if you could talk about that and read a section from the book for us. Sure. With regard to Hannah Musgrave, I mean, she's to me a very real and vivid uh, and individuated character and not representative of anything particularly. I knew women like her in the movement. And um, by the time I, I set out to write that book, I was of an age where I started to realize back then um, I I really hadn't paid much attention. I mean, it was a sexist movement in the early days. And I started to wonder about some of those women, you know, who worked harder and risked more in many cases than the men did. 
And I just started wondering, where are they now? That sort of thing. I mean, what happened to those women? And so it was a way of re, uh, reacquainting myself and, 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 and entering into the life of, of a woman who was uh, like the women I knew back in my 20s, uh, who would now be in their 60s. And um, so I just wanted her to tell her story. Um, and and, the, and the, uh, the book really grew out of that impulse. I imagined um, Anna Musgrave as a woman uh, finally um, in a settled and semi-retired life as a woman in her 60s talking to a friend, um, a male friend uh, from a similar background uh, and telling her story to him. And so I had to invent her, but I also first had to invent a listener which was closely based on myself, naturally. I want to break in here and say that that is one of the pieces of advice that you gave me as a writing teacher that was super, super helpful. And actually the first ever first person novel that I published, The King of Kings County, didn't work until I figured out who my narrator was speaking to. So I just want to say, like, as a craft issue, that is really good advice to our <laughs> potential writers out there. That okay, I'd like to hear again. good. Great, thanks. You're glad it held, <laughs> held up over the years. Well, this is early in the book, uh, the section that uh, you suggested um, with Hannah and uh, and uh, Zach uh, and a uh, and a third person, a young woman, are um, a sort of a cell, a weather cell, um, sleeper cell um, in um, in Bedford, uh, Massachusetts, and um, the weatherman was very uh, decentralized, and, and the cells were quite independent. There was no core administrative leadership or strategic leadership, um, and it's one reason why they were in some ways most so effective and so difficult to apprehend and, and, and bring down for so long. Anyhow, she's telling this story, uh, th these pages. When he wasn't working with me in the basement or driving his cab, Zach had taken to traveling to New York City for days at a time. I'm making some very cool contact down there with our black comrades in arms, he told me. These brothers, man, they're the forward force of the revolution, the elite corps. A lot of them have been in the joint. Some of the brothers are vets back from Nam, man, and they're pissed. They make weather look like candy stripers, man. I asked him if they were Black Panthers, but he said, no way, these guys are in deep cover, man. And the kind of action they're into is almost beyond politics. These brothers are much heavier than the Panthers. Again, I believed about half of what he told me, but the half I believed lifted my spirits. For years, ever since the Civil Rights Movement got taken over by blacks and the white college kids like me and the white lawyers and clergymen were sent home from the South, leaving us with only the splinters that were left of the anti-war movement, SDS, Weathermen, the Yippies, Diggers, and so on, all of whom were white and middle class. I'd felt somehow cheated out of my true mission, as if in my chosen line of work I'd been deprived of an essential tool, and that tool was black people. Practically from childhood, and especially in high school and college, Thanks to my father's old-time New England hierarchy of values, I'm sure, and his heavy emphasis on noblesse oblige, my heroes had been the 19th century white abolitionists, most of whom were educated upper-class women from New England, like me. And my father had nothing for those women but unqualified praise and admiration. 
Among all our distinguished ancestors, Hannah, those female abolitionists are the ones I hold in highest regard. The others, the men, all they ever did was make money. Until I came along, he'd add, laughing, as if he, a world-famous pediatrician who wrote best-selling books on child care, had somehow managed to avoid making money. I wanted to know more about these mysterious black proletarian warriors in New York City with whom Zach claimed to have initiated an alliance. But beyond offering hints, winks, and vague allusions to plans for bank robberies and hijacked armored trucks and heavy weaponry, he wouldn't tell me anything specific or concrete, which disappointed me. And after a while, I figured they were largely a blend of rumor and fantasy cooked up by Zach and some of his male friends, the New York-based members of Weather. Radical white boy wet dreams. Until the late winter night that he came banging on our door at 2 a.m. When I let him in, he collapsed on the floor in the hallway, bleeding through his jacket. And I knew right away it was from a bullet wound. I'd seen enough of them in the emergency room at Peter Bent Brigham not to confuse a bullet wound with any other kind of injury. It was usually the face of the victim that gave it away. Scared, in pain, but mainly surprised. Zach had that look. He'd blown it, he explained, blown it big time, and we were going to have to leave the apartment, get out of New Bedford, out of the country probably. We not only, as always, had the FBI sniffing after us, but now we are also being hunted down by these black guerrillas from New York City, Zach's very heavy dudes, who he had suddenly discovered were not Maoist revolutionaries after all, but gangsters, bank robbers, drug dealers. The real thing, man. He tried to draw a line, he said, on dealing drugs, specifically heroin, and in Newark, on the way to make a buy, they'd had an argument, a misunderstanding, actually, based not on money, he assured me, but principles. Although they had thought it was about money, which they had, they thought it was about money, which is why the misunderstanding had gotten out of hand, so to speak, and they'd suddenly turned on him. He was lucky to have gotten out of there and back here alive, he said. And now these guys were more dangerous to us than the FBI was because he knew stuff about them that no one else did. And they knew our names and where we lived, the city of New Bedford at least, but not the actual street address, he assured me. So we had a little time, maybe a day or two, before they came knocking on the door. What do you mean, us and we? What the hell did you tell them about me? Nothing, ma'am, just your name in passing, you know, on account of the weather thing. I mean, you think you're only a peon in the movement, but you're well-known, man, a poster girl. You were sort of like my bona fides, you know what I'm saying? Who are these black people, anyhow? I mean, really, I thought they were SLA or Black Liberation Army, borderline, but more or less legitimate. Well, yeah, I guess at first I did too, but they sort of work both sides of the street, play one side off against the other. Look, Hannah, I got confused. Don. Yeah, sorry, Don, but you know what I mean. Christ, half of Weather and half the Panthers are FBI informers. Half the Klan is on the federal payroll. The Muslims killed Malcolm and J. Edgar Hoover probably had Martin killed. And who the hell knows who killed Bobby and JFK? Probably LBJ. The point is, there's nobody left who isn't wearing some kind of disguise. So who do you trust? You trusted these New York guys, obviously, and I guess they trusted you enough to let you know too much. Mistake, big mistake, on both parts, mine and theirs. 
In a strange way, I felt almost relieved that everything seemed to be coming undone, and it was difficult not to show it. Do they know me as Hannah Musgrave or Don Carrington, or both? Oh, no, just Hannah Musgrave, your poster girl name, he said. But I knew he was lying. What about Carol? She's cool. I never mentioned her. No reason to. That much I did believe. To Zach, Carol, and Bettina were like my houseplants. Where will you go? Way I figure it's got to be back to Ghana, man. Tomorrow I've got enough bread to get me there, and I know how to get by okay in Accra. It's a very cool city, man, especially for Americans. Thank you so much for that, Russell. Um, God, what a great book. Hannah is giving herself up here, isn't she? I mean, how can someone really be interested in civil rights and equality if they view black people as tools? And Why did you choose to have her use that term. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, well, I think it's, it's, uh, her use of it is pretty unconscious, of course, um, but uh, the good reader will pick it up and say, oh, I see, there is some, there's a soft underbelly here somewhere, and, uh, and it's, uh, she on the surface of it is this tough, uh, extremely radical person um, who uh, ha- may have extremely mixed motives for doing what she's doing, and, um, and positioning herself in society as she has. Um, and, and she doesn't know it at this time, in this time in the book. And later, uh, she begins to realize the complexity of her motivations and, 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 and uh, reasons for um, engagement in, in the particular ways that she did. Which is true for all of us, I suppose, in, in, in uh, almost every respect of our lives. I was thinking about, well, the other thing that I thought about, we were talking about comparing that particular period of time to now. I mean, one thing that does seem to be different is that there is not, Black Lives Matter is not planning bombings like the Weather Underground did. There's a, there's like uh, less violence uh, of the kind that I think the Weather Underground was doing. And then there are also things that are saying there where you're talking about like the number of assassinations of political figures. Fortunately, that's not happening now. Um I mean, all of that seems like when you when you went through that list there and then said everyone's wearing a disguise, you know, I thought, OK, now everyone wearing a disguise does feel like now. But that other but bunch of deaths happening there and all that stuff seems pretty extreme. Oh, it is. And no question. And, and um, when it erupted and it began erupting, not so much with the the assassination of JFK, that, that was an anomaly at the time. But then. Uh, after you know, with Malcolm X and 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 um, and and Bobby Kennedy and Martin Luther King and and Medgar Evers and so on, uh, they they um, they didn't normalize assassination, but they made it part of the context for sure. And uh, and the level of violence went up in response to that, of course. Um, and weathermen's bombings and other forms of of, of terroristic activities went way up. Uh, and then in response, uh, you know, the FBI started uh, committing acts of terror and, and, and murder as well. So that was the other interesting thing is like how do rigor it was for everyone to be in FBI files. I mean, the closest thing that I can remember that I can think of happening now is that DHS has been revealed to have collected in, in information on journalists. There's some sense that they're, that people are using drones and that law enforcement agencies are using particularly federal ones, that weird federal force that Trump has been sending around the country sort of seems like a little bit like what he would wishes the FBI would be. <laughs> you know, the FBI's not really as outlaw, as as much of an outlaw as Hoover's FBI now, but this DHS force might be. I don't know what you think about that. Oh, I think so. I mean, there's no question about it, that, that those attempts to usurp 
power and and control um, the population, especially the restive part of the population, uh, is 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 constant. It's a universal. I mean, these things aren't peculiar to the last few decades of American life or or to the United States itself. I mean, these this is universal impulses that are being acted out, and. Um, so it, it, it naturally it, it resembles things that have happened in the past, going all the way back to what about, you know, breaking strikes in the early part of the century of the, of the 20th century and going back into the 19th century and, um, and, and the whole uh, era, um, you know, following uh, Reconstruction uh, with the, 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 the clan and, and the vigilantes on the rise. There is a transformation in de-radicalization Hannah experiences as she becomes a member of the Liberian aristocracy, and she benefits from this exorbitant wealth and prestige, and she's surrounded by poverty and is complicit in a system that benefits very few people. And at one point, and I'm thinking here about what you said earlier about despair, the part where, for those of you, those of our listeners who don't watch the virtual book channel, you can look later and see how my face fell as Russell said that. Um one point she admits, it all seemed so hopeless to me that I averted my gaze. I did not see what I could not begin to change. And I'm curious to hear you talk a little bit about the role of that sentiment in the book. And if you do, you see it today? Yeah, that, that's a, that's the consequence of falling into despair. Uh, um, uh, rage is uh, is uh, the, the consequence of, of falling into rage is, yeah, setting bombs, um, killing people. Um Violence of various forms, um, burning down buildings, breaking the glass of stores, small shopkeepers. That rage is, drives that. But despair then um, um, brings you to the point where you uh, avert your gaze. You, you simply uh, look the other way. And um, they're, they're equally uh, destructive. Uh, and she's going through that second response. She had already gone through the first rage. And um, it's an, in a way an equal and opposite response to um, to social realities that you feel you can't change, that, that that the powers that are arrayed against you are so great and and so demoralizing that you have no choice but either to break the window with a rock, a brick, um, or fire a gun into a crowd, or blow up a building, on the one hand, or um, Avert your gaze. Go live on a commune in New Hampshire, um, or um, go to work for a company that allows you to make as much money as you can imagine in as short a time as possible. Um, protect your children so they uh, with with a private school system and and uh, and build walls around your house. Uh, live in a walled um, community, um, one way or the other, metaphorically or really. So, yeah, so she's going through that in the book, uh, that second um, level response um, to forces that she thinks cannot be changed. And she's facing it down in a place where, uh, well, you know, Liberia, West Africa, there you're facing despair very quickly. I spent time in, in, in Haiti and, and other countries and in, in West Africa as well. And, and boy, it's, it's very difficult not to avert your gaze, um, but to look directly at what's in front of you and try to understand. But Liberia also has a particularly, you know, sort of metaphoric resonance for Americans because, you know, it was a country that was founded to be a home for freed slaves. And it was created by racist whites like Henry Clay and opposed by most prominent black Americans at the time, but then, you know, became a black ruled country 
And Charles Taylor, who is one of its authoritarian leaders, is a character in this novel. I wonder if you could talk about the complicated history of Liberia and why he chose to set the book there. Well, yeah, and it was uh, given the um, rather uh, dubious opportunity to help make the United States a, a white, an all-white country by being a haven for African-Americans. And, um, and it was popular. Even Abraham Lincoln for a while was a, was a member of, uh, was a supporter of it. Um, and it was designed basically to send them back to Africa, its, its existence. And, and unfortunately, they brought back with them um, essentially plantation culture. Most of them came off the plantations. They were, they were uh, not freed blacks. They were, most of them were, in fact, s- slaves who were freed uh, to go back to Africa on the condition that they stay there. Over time, um, especially after um, the um, entry of the automobile into modern uh, life, when it became the greatest source in the world for rubber um, and was taken over by American industrial rubber industrialists, um, the country was turned into a, a rubber plantation um, and, and recreated the same kind of, of hierarchy um, that had existed in the plantation uh, of the South in the antebellum era. But when it erupted in the, in the, in the uh, 90s uh, with, into civil war, it, it turned out to be, um, as most civil wars do, um, one of the most uh, bloody and awful um, wars uh, on the continent. Um, Russell, it's such a pleasure to have you with us. I want to remind our listeners to pick up his 2004 novel, The Darling, which we've been talking about in this episode or, or any of his fantastic books. And maybe, Russell, before you say goodbye, can you get, tell us what you're working on now? Just give us a preview. Well, I just got the Bound Galleys um, for a new novel that's going to be coming out next winter uh, called Forgone. F-O-R-E-G-O-N-E, Forgone, and uh, Echo, uh, HarperCollins, is publishing it. And the galleys came in yesterday, so I'm quite happy and excited. All these years later, with all these books later, it's still still thrilling when the the bound galleys come in. Well, congratulations. We're excited to read it. Is it not true that your editor is potting with you right now? Can we talk about that this? That is true. Yeah, Wait, Dan really? Alford, what? Yeah, he's in our pod. Uh, he he was on the thirty fourth floor in New York City, um, running Echo from there, um, and hadn't even gotten on the elevator to go down yet. And and I said, you know, you can do this just as easily from up here in the Adirondacks and in the mountains, and, and we've got the nice little guest suite. You can have it. And so he's up here. He's came up in early June. He's been here ever since, and. Um, He's been uh, uh, running uh, his uh, his show from here. Oh, my God, that's amazing. Every writer's <laughs> secret dream to be able to hold their editor hostage in their own home by a yeah, pandemic. So they I have to know. publish their stuff. <laughs> All right. It's great to see you, Russell. Thank you so much for being on the show. I'll talk to you soon. Okay. Yeah. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. That's it for this episode of the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast from Literary Hub. Our producer is Andrea Tudhope. Our theme music is by Travis Workman. Thanks to Dylan Mietinen of the University of Minnesota for being this summer's intern producer. To subscribe to Fiction Nonfiction, please type fiction slash non slash fiction into your favorite podcast app. We'd love to hear your ideas and feedback. You can reach us at fictionnonfictionpodcast at gmail.com, on Twitter at FNF Talk on Facebook at FNF Pod, 
and on Instagram at fiction.non.fiction.podcast. In each of these spots, you'll find links to our LitHub radio show notes, including some of the readings we mentioned today. That's all, folks. Until next time, take care. Read up, mask up, and support the Postal Service.